Okay, gang, take your Bible and go to John chapter 10, if you would, please. Uh, John chapter 10. This is the third in a seven-part series of messages leading up to Easter, uh, celebrating the seven I Am statements of Jesus Christ. John, the biographer, the gospel author, John wants you to know Jesus Christ. In fact, John goes as far as to say that at the end of his book in chapter 20 and verse 31 when he says, I've written down all this information that you might know that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Uh, John's Gospel contains seven statements made by Jesus. We refer to them as the I Am statements. He also covers seven miracles in detail. And it's as though John wants these seven miracles and those seven statements by Christ himself to help us all better know or come to know Jesus Christ. Now, in my experience, a lot of people confuse academic Jesus with relational Jesus. A lot of people assume the more I know about Jesus, the deeper I am spiritually or the closer I am to God. You know, I don't really like terminology like that. Um, But a lot of people mistakenly assume that the more facts and information that I've absorbed about Jesus in an academic way, the better off I am so far as in my faith walk. Often we confuse knowledge about Jesus or about God or about his book with spiritual depth. And the two cannot be confused that way. I've said this many times. This is not a rule book, church. This is not a rule book. God did not protect this inspired information for many, many centuries He didn't bring it together over a period of 1,600 years using 40 different authors, two basic primary languages, multiple continents. He didn't give it the unity that it possesses. He didn't give it the power to change lives that we understand from it, simply so we could go throughout it and try to find facts and information, formulas, uh, strategies, if you will, to make us feel better about our faith walk. I want you to know that when the Bible talks about, or John talks about, or we have a series surrounding the idea of knowing Jesus Christ, that knowledge isn't everything it's cracked up to be. Now, again, don't misunderstand. I'm all about knowledge, and I love the information, and I really enjoy studying this book. Um, But Paul said plainly that knowledge tends to puff us up. Knowledge can lead to legalism. Knowledge can lead to pride. Knowledge can lead to a mistaken understanding that the more I know, the better I am in the eyes of God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul goes on to say it's love that builds us up. So when we talk about knowing Jesus, we're not talking about an academic knowledge. We want you to memorize a few more facts today about Jesus and his story. We're talking about a relational knowledge. In fact, here's our goal through this series. Knowing Jesus is about using knowledge of Jesus to deepen the relationship with Jesus. You see? Now, maybe that's elementary and a bit pedantic. Maybe you get it easily, but I wanted you to see it there because not everyone lives out their faith this way. Knowledge or knowing Jesus is about gaining knowledge of Jesus in order that it might deepen my relationship with Jesus. Okay, let me explain and give you a little example of what I'm talking about. Let's say the only reason you date someone of the opposite sex, or the only reason even you go as far as to marry someone of the opposite sex, 
is so that you can gain knowledge about men or women or husbands or wives. Okay? Let's say that you get into a relationship and the only reason you're there is to gain knowledge about being a husband or about being a wife or about that person as a husband or a wife, male or female. If the only reason you're in that relationship is to gain that knowledge, and yet if that newly acquired knowledge never affects your actions or your behavior in reference to that relationship, you're likely to remain single. In fact, if I know a thousand facts about my wife, and I know a thousand facts about marriage, about husbands, about wives, but that knowledge never impacts my behavior, never builds up my relationship with Amy, then I'm a fraud. I'm not the husband I think I am. For instance, uh, you've heard of Dr. Gary Chapman's five love languages. Let's say that I know my wife's love language is service, acts of service. My wife hears acts of service. She speaks acts of service. Let's say that I know her love language is acts of service. So all day long, I go around saying, I know my wife's love language is acts of service. Does that make me a better husband? Obviously not. Well, I know that as a husband, my wife's love language is acts of service. That doesn't make me a good husband. It doesn't do anything to benefit our marriage. That's the way a lot of people go at their faith in Jesus Christ. They learn, hey, Jesus is the bread of life, that only Jesus can sustain me. But then wait, they never put him to the test. They never wait on him. They never rely on him. They're never willing to hold on long enough to see that Jesus truly can sustain themselves. Instead, they chase the next new thing, the next new feeling, drugs, alcohol, medication, sex, any other distraction to keep from relying on Jesus as the bread of life, the sustaining spirit that he is. We learned last time that Jesus is the light of the world. So Jesus is the light of the world, and that means that he's the answer to my spiritual questions. Well, if I never wait on him, if I never pray to him, if I never listen for him, if I'm not willing to wait, if I'm not willing to walk, even when the path isn't as clear as I'd like it to be, then he's not really my light of the world. I know he claims to be the light of the world, but that's not something that I've experienced relationally. Listen, man, I bring this to your attention especially. I think it's important, especially for men in the audience at Grace Community Church. Men, your faith walk does not mean that you're somehow feminine. Uh, I bring that to your attention because a lot of guys hear this idea of a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And to them, that screams of femininity. Uh, You've heard me complain uh, before that the church has been overmothered and it's been underfathered. I want men who love Jesus, men of faith, to stand up and realize that it doesn't make you feminine. It doesn't make you soft. It doesn't make you emotional. Here's what it makes you. It makes you a man who's willing to take his academic understanding of Jesus and act on it. You see, that's a man of faith. Uh, That's a man of consequence. So we get to this third statement. I am the gate, Jesus is about to say. I am the gate. We've talked about the bread of life. We've talked about the light of the world. Today, I am the gate. The people on this planet, in my estimation, are confronted with three gates or three doors, you might call them. Uh, It's like a little game of let's make a deal we're about to play with Monty Hall or Wayne Brady. 
Uh, let's make a deal. We've got three doors. Uh, all, every human being alive on planet Earth has the opportunity to open, to open one and walk through one of the following three doors. Here's door number one. Door number one, what's behind it? Religion. You do it. This was the door chosen by the Pharisees. This was the door chosen by the legalistic supermen of the day. These men said, in order to get to God, you open this door of religion, you walk through, and it's up to you to behave a certain way. Jesus said, that's not it. What's behind door number two? Behind door number two is what we'll call idol worship. Idol worship. Uh, This could be something like materialism. This could be greed. Um, Excuse me. This could be money, the acquisition of stuff, possessions. What's behind door number two? What's behind door number two is this belief that I deserve more in life. And that if I get it, I'll be truly happy. So while we might not bow down to some figurine in our homes, by default, if we neither choose door number one or door number three, we've chosen door number two. Our lives are revolving around an idol that we've set up as the most important thing in living. Now, what's behind door number three? Behind door number three is the message of Christianity. It's one of the distinct messages of Christianity. It separates Christianity from every other world religion. Behind door number three, Jesus, and he does it. You see, Islam doesn't teach this. Judaism and the doctrine of the Pharisees doesn't teach this. The new age movement, the karma uh, motivation doesn't teach this. Christianity alone teaches that what's behind door number three is Jesus himself, and he's willing to do it for us. Now, the gate or the door metaphor, this analogy, is throughout your Bible. It's not just something Jesus said on one occasion. From the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, there's a lot of gate and door theology or analogies. Um, If you have a different translation than the New International Version that I'm using, it might say door instead of gate, but they basically mean identically the same thing. In the Old Testament, for instance, we begin in Exodus chapter 12. It was the night of the Passover. It was the night of the great deliverance, the exodus of God's people from their 400 years of bondage in Egypt. God told the people, take the blood from the Passover lamb and paint it on your doorpost. When the angel of death comes into Egypt, he'll pass over that house. The house with the blood on the door will be a house of salvation rather than a house of death. You fast forward into their journey through the wilderness, and in chapter 29 and verse 32, the tabernacle is described. The Old Testament tabernacle was like a portable temple. And in that tabernacle, when they set it up, it had one gate. The gate was 30 feet wide. All the people entered the gate. And by entering the gate, they found forgiveness of sins, and they found the very dwelling place of God. Hosea chapter 2 verse 15 speaks of a door of hope. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet and close the door. And what you do in secret, God will reward openly. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. And if you'll knock on the door, someone will answer and you will find. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus said, 
I've opened a door for the church that no one can close. No one can close it. And then also in that chapter, verse 20, Jesus said, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. If you'll open it, I will enter and we'll eat together. So when Jesus states, I am the gate in John chapter 10, I want you to understand this isn't some out of the blue statement that no one could understand. It is rich, this idea of gates and doors and entering and exiting. It's rich in biblical history, certainly in Jewish history. We're going to read 10 verses beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 10. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you Pharisees. Now, I told you this last time, but you'll see as this unfolds, every one of these seven I am statements is made in contrast to a claim of the Pharisees. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You are not, Mr. Pharisee. You are not, Mr. Religious Superman. He says, I'm the light of the world. You are not, Mr. Pharisee. And here he's going to say, I'm the gate. You are not. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees were trying to get to God the Father some other way. They weren't going through the gate. We know this because in every instance John reveals one of the seven statements, what follows is this big argument from the Pharisees over whether or not it's accurate. The arguments got so intense that they started to stone him on a couple of occasions and eventually they plotted against him to arrest him and persecute him verse 2 the one who enters by the sheep gate (coughs) excuse me by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep that makes sense again don't think don't get too deep into this it's just a very simple statement that jesus is making if i walk through the gate then i'm the shepherd if i'm climbing over the wall in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness i'm up to no good that's like the pharisees verse 3 the gatekeeper opens the gate for him And the sheep listen to his voice. Now, pause for a moment. One of the simplest, most basic, fundamental evidences that my faith in Jesus Christ is authentic is my simple desire to listen to him. How can I claim, church, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that Jesus is my Lord, that I am his child, if I have no interest in listening to his voice? Jesus says in this analogy, I'm the gate, and when the shepherd speaks, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. Again, Jesus knows you personally. He knows all the details about your life. The Bible says things like, he knows the hairs on your head. He knows how you operate. He knows how you live. The Old Testament, Psalm 139, says he knows the most insignificant parts of your day. How many times you stood up from a chair today? How many times you'll sit down? He knows all this about you. That's because God desires a personal relationship with you, not simply your possessing or gaining academic knowledge of him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because, again... They know his voice, evidence that they are his children, a simple, intentional desire, okay? Verse 5, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Well, now Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said it again. 
Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Can't make it any more clear than that. Jesus said, I am the way to God. I am the gate to eternal life. Verse 8. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Again, not the Pharisees, not through religious devotion, not through good behavior or good deeds, not through Muhammad, Muhammad, not through karma, but Jesus alone. I am the gate. They will come in and go out and they'll find pasture. Now watch verse 10. The thief comes only. The thief, in this analogy, they're the Pharisees, that rich religious custom that they had perverted and twisted. The thief comes to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Now, the Pharisees had demonstrated that they were not true shepherds. They had already demonstrated to the people and to Jesus that they were the thieves and the robbers. They had not entered God's appointed way. They were not in God's appointed work. And when Jesus stood up and said, I am, they said, no, you're not. In contrast to their thieves and their robbers sneaking over the fence in the middle of the night, Jesus says very plainly, I'm here, I'm on the scene. Jesus' arrival came with a series of prophetical revelations that had been backed up over hundreds of years. Do you realize how many principles, how many prophecies are in your Old Testament that speak as to the birthplace of Jesus, people like Micah in the Old Testament, Nahum in the Old Testament, the psalmist of the Old Testament, Isaiah in the Old Testament. But they not only spoke of the place of Jesus' birth, they spoke of his life and his teaching. They spoke about how he would die. They spoke about one who would betray him. All of these biblical prophecies come together to position Jesus Christ as Messiah. So the reality or the revelation or the fulfillment of the Pharisees' Old Testament faith was standing right in front of them, and yet they rejected him anyway. Lee Strobel is the author of many books. His most famous, and I think his first, was called The Case for Christ. And in this particular video clip that I'm going to show you, Lee Strobel makes the case for the authenticity of Christ as Messiah. If he is Messiah, then he is the gate. Check this out. Scholars have determined that Jesus fulfilled at least four dozen major prophecies, each written a minimum of three centuries before his birth. Their content ranged from specific details about his life to the symbolic implications of his death. Psalm 22 gives a poetic picture by David, written in the first person, of what the Messiah will be like in his suffering. And one of the things he says is that they will pierce my hands and my feet. Now, David wrote, before crucifixion was known, probably by about 300 years, Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through. It gives us the reason for his death. He was pierced through for our iniquities. So there's a purpose. He dies not just because he's a martyr, but because he's a substitution for sin. A college professor of mathematics and science named Dr. Peter Stoner wanted to determine what the odds were that any human being throughout history could fulfill the messianic prophecies. 
So he had his students come up with very conservative estimates of the likelihood of any human being fulfilling certain of these predictions. And then they just ran the numbers. And what they determined is that the odds of any human being fulfilling 48 of these ancient prophecies would be one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. So Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Jesus is standing on the backs of multiple prophecies, hundreds of years old. There he stands right in front of them, and they still reject him. He makes a simple claim, a simple statement. I am the gate. I am the way to God. I have come that you might have access to the Father. And they rejected it. Now, I bring this to your attention because we don't live in a world full of Pharisees, right? But we all know what a hypocrite looks like, what a hypocrite sounds like, right? We all know this super religious person who is a lousy father or a lousy mother, maybe even a lousy employee, a lousy parent, whatever it is, and yet they proclaim, they speak this rich, deep faith. They talk about all that God has shown them and all that God has revealed to them. We live in a community of, of gates, of supposed gates. People who say, you must be like me, have usurped Christ's authority as gate, like the Pharisees, and they have become the gate. You see, as soon as you should be like me, you should look like me, you should talk like me, becomes part of our lingo in this church, or part of our methodology. Uh, If you don't fit in with us, because you're not like us, as soon as that happens, guess what? We become the gate. We become the gate. Jesus said plainly, I'm not, I am the gate. Your knowledge is not the gate. Baptism is not the gate. Your small group is not the gate. A certain lifestyle or lifestyle choices, well, we do this, but we don't do that. That's not the gate. A certain style of worship, something you feel in worship, that's not the gate. Jesus said, I am the gate. Now, let me tell you why this matters so much. I believe never in the history of our nation, our culture, even in southeast Georgia, at least during my lifetime, have we ever felt better about ourselves, morally speaking. Do you realize we live in a very divided nation politically? And yet everybody in our country who despises our new president believes they're good people. They believe he's evil. And it's their responsibility as good people to fight him. Conversely, everybody on the other side who supports our president believes they're good people. So you have two people who are diametrically opposed to one another as far as their political beliefs and perhaps the person they voted for, both believing themselves to be good people. Do you know what Christianity teaches? Christianity teaches none of you are good people. None of us are good people. I'm not a good person because I live this way or live that way. I'm not a good person before God because I feel morally superior to you. St. Augustine is one of the church founding fathers, one of the church theologians, you might say. St. Augustine says this, There are many who, according to a custom of this life, are called good people. Now, you would agree with that, right? There are scores of people who are not in churches today, 
scores of people who don't believe this is the inspired word of God, scores of people uh, who do not revere Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, boss, who consider themselves good people. He goes on, good men, good women, innocent observers, as it were, of what is commanded in the law. He goes on to explain that, like paying respect to their parents, abstaining from adultery, doing no murder, committing no theft, giving no false witness against anyone, observing all else that the law requires, yet they are not Christians, he says. Listen to this. Pagans may say, we live well. That's like saying, we're good people. And he concludes, if they, speaking of the pagans, who are good people, but they do not recognize Jesus as the gate, if they enter not by the door, what good will that good do them, whereof may they boast? You know what this man is saying? He's saying there are a lot of moral, good, virtuous people out there who probably could hold their own in a setting like this one. But the drive behind their morality has nothing to do with the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. They're as good as you and I will ever be, and yet they do not share our faith. What Augustus is saying is, if they enter not through the gate, which is Jesus alone, what good is that good doing them? What do they have to boast about other than their own good? Here's why this matters. This is the big deal, and please make sure you get this before you leave. To accept Jesus' claim in John 10, I am the gate, I first must see myself as a sheep. In order for this to matter, in order for his claim of being the gate to have impact on my life, unlike the Pharisees, the religious supermen of the day, I have to see myself as a sheep. Now, do you know much about sheep? I've never farmed sheep. I've read some books on sheep. I know a little bit about sheep. Last week, I did a lot of research on sheep. Let me tell you something. Sheep are ignorant. You know that. You've heard that. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are foolish. If one sheep does something, many others will follow because they're like codependent of one another. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep are resistant to change. Sheep are dirty. They're dirty animals. Sheep, I, I, I think about sheep and I think about all the characteristics of a sheep and I have to be honest and say, I'm a sheep. I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am. In fact, I have done some things in my life that are foolish. I have done some things in my life that are out of bounds just because other people were doing them, just like a sheep. Sheep are demanding. Sheep, if you're not giving them what they want, they'll let you hear about it. Man, that's the way I pray sometimes. Sheep are me and I am sheep. In order for God's Christ's claim of being my gate to matter to me, I first have to see myself as a sheep, which was something the Pharisees could not do. I say, yes, I may be a sheep, but thank God he is the gate. That's what I say. That's what I say. Jesus made it possible for unrighteous people to be seen as righteous before God. Broken people to made whole, be made whole again. Unclean people to be seen of God as clean and innocent. Verse 10 is the last part of this passage before he transitions into the next I am statement. And I want to share it with you one more time and then we'll quit. Verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I have come that you may have life. So, of course, when Jesus says, I'm the gate, he's talking about things like, I'm the pathway to righteousness. 
on the pathway to eternity in heaven. But he's also saying next, I want you to have life and have it to the full. He's also saying, I'm the pathway to the Father. And through this relationship with the Father, you get all the good things in life. You get things like peace and comfort. Things like encouragement. Things like guidance. Things like blessing. I am the gate, Jesus said. And he gave us this very simple analogy. It led me to write down four questions, and I quit with them. Question number one. If Jesus is the gate, am I sensitive to his voice? Jesus said in verse 3, I'm the gate, the shepherd comes through the gate, the sheep go through the gate, and they hear the shepherd's voice. Do you recognize the voice of God? Do you know God's speaking to you through a variety of means? He'll speak to you through this book, primarily. He'll speak to you through others. He'll speak to you through your own prayer life. He'll speak to you through your conscience. Are you listening? Are you sensitive to his voice? Question number two, do I follow his leadership? When I hear his voice, am I willing to make those small adjustments? Daily, weekly, monthly, moment by moment. As God reveals it to me, am I willing to follow his leadership? Question number three, am I confident in my destiny? Jesus said in verse nine, I am the gate. If you enter through me, you will be saved. Let me ask you something like John prayed a moment ago. Do you live with eternity in mind or payday? Do you live with eternity in mind or the weekend? Do you live with eternity in mind or the next big thing? And then question number four, do I find life in him? Do I find life in him? Jesus didn't promise to make you happy, but he did promise that in him you'll find what you need. Jesus said, in this world you're going to have a lot of trouble, but relax, I've overcome this world. So, do I find life in him? I am the gate. I have access to the Father and access to life to the full. That's what Jesus said. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, when we leave here today, I, God, I just pray you'll, you'll impress upon us, burn within our conscience the reality that for us to benefit from Jesus being the gate, we have to first see ourselves as sheep. And that's not easy for most of us to do. Father, forgive our pride. Forgive our foolish legalism. And help us walk humbly in celebration that what we could never have done on our own, because we're sheep, Jesus did for us. So it's through him I pray with thanksgiving. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. Make it a good week. I'll see you next time.